Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you. We are in the book of Acts, chapter 3 this morning. And if you have your Bibles, please open to that chapter. We will stand in one moment and take verses 3, uh, pardon me, verses 1 through 10. The book of Acts, chapter 3. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go in the temple, asked for alms, And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankles, ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Please be seated. brief review, I think, is necessary. Last Sunday, in considering chapter 2, the title was Foundations, because that verse in Acts 2.42 is a foundational verse for Christianity. Continuing, continuing, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and the communion, and prayer. This is our foundation. In verse 42 of chapter 2, we read of that <clears throat> we read that the church was unified that they were together in fellowship and then in verse 44 we read that the church was magnified it wasn't made larger it was just uh, it, it certainly increased but it was beginning to be seen by everyone and because of this then it multiplied and the alliteration that the church was unified in the alliteration part, magnified and multiplied. That's just a sweet fact that belongs to the beginning of Christianity as we know it. And it challenges us as individual believers and as a local assembly. What are we doing along those lines? Are we adhering to the foundation? And as a result of this, are we unified? Is the church magnified? And does it multiply? And for a church or a Christian to stop being what they are in order to make room for those who are not what they are is to help the devil. We are Christians. We believe in a Jesus Christ that was prophesied by the prophets who came and died for us as God the Son who rose again, who ascended into heaven who immersed believers in the Holy Spirit, 
We believe in this Jesus Christ who died for our sins, that each one of us is a sinner and we need a Savior, and He is the only one. Now, if someone does not agree with that, we're not going to make room for that thinking in, in our theology because that would be assisting the devil and therefore the apostles' doctrine, continuing in their doctrine and not to be an advocate for the world. We have seen this happen in some of these Ivy League schools, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, even the YMCA. They were leavened. They made room for the world. Instead of letting the light shine out so brightly that there was nothing, nowhere for the world to hide. And a church has to guard against these things, and it is that, again, that foundation that does it. Here in this third chapter, we come across a lame beggar, and then not this session, next session, we'll get into Peter's sermon. And it's so meaningful how the apostles handled the people that came in touch with them on spiritual matters. And Peter, when he preaches, he's not going to preach on miracles. He's going to preach on Jesus Christ. Miracles were used by God, for sure. Signs and wonders in the New Testament in those early ages to deliver his people from bondage. God used miracles when they were slaves in Egypt. Uh, always the people uh, that belong to God hope in miracles when in need, but we don't trust in the miracles. We trust in God. A lot of believers get tripped up with this. Psalm 78 speaks about these things, about the people of God who came in touch with his miracles, but did not continue to trust him, wanting to live by miracles. The writer says in verse 7 of Psalm 78, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. See, the, the ancient Jews understood this, the righteous ones. And may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. God wants faith. The writer to Hebrews, likely Paul, wrote that without faith it is impossible to please God. Psalm 78, because you, same psalm, but this time verse 22, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. That's the rebuke baked into that psalm for that present generation to read it and say, okay, it's our turn. It's our turn to trust God. And it is our turn to trust him without demanding that God do miraculous things so that we can trust. Trust is not contrary to truth. Trust is contrary to doubt. In those areas where God has established himself already, Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses is now reviewing the 40 years in the wilderness. And in, in that first chapter, we read just this one verse says so much. Verse 32 of Deuteronomy 1, Yet for all that you did not believe, Yahweh your God. Yet for all that, you had enough evidence, you had enough proof, you know who I am, and yet, for all that, you still did not believe. You could say that about Judas Iscariot. You can say that about any apostate who once believed, 
but fell away. And that's what that Greek word apostate means, to fall away from, which presupposes you once were joined to. And we are to live as though we have met God. That's what a part of being born again, born from above. Hosea chapter 14, verse 9. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of Yahweh are right. The righteous walk in them. What I'm trying to join together here is that foundation of our faith, the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the communion, and the prayer, that those things are our priority, not the miracles. Because belief, faith in Jesus Christ, is a miracle unto itself. And I fear that you know, the part of the, you, you come in touch with the scripture and we, we expect miracles, but they don't happen at the rate that we want to see them happen. So the priority is said by Jesus in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all things shall be added to you, not owed to you. We have no sense of entitlement, no claim on God. And it matters. This, Jesus is saying it matters what we do with what matters to God. And that is truth according to the revelation of God, his word from his scripture. This is our priority as believers. We are in the age of faith. We are living in a time when we are to speak the truth in love and firmness and be assured of what we believe in. As the scripture says, doubting nothing. Now we look at verse 1, because hopefully what I have introduced this section with has everything to do with what's coming forward. We're going to see a miracle take place, and that's all great, but I don't need to see miracles at this stage in Christianity, because I have the completed canon of scripture, the rule of scripture. I have the New Testament along with the old. Verse 1, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Here's Peter and John found together yet again, and often in Scripture. Two very different personalities these two men were, yet in fellowship together. And you could say in harmony when it came to the things of Christ. Partners in a fishing business before Jesus came into their lives. They were sent, those two, Jesus said to Peter and John, together to prepare for the Passover. They ran to the empty tomb together. They will be arrested together. We'll get that in latter chapters, not very far from now, but still to come. They ministered to the Samaritans together. This unity that they enjoyed is very important to us. Uh, here they are going together in prayer to the temple. No longer competing for greatness. No longer uh, disagreeing with each other on spiritual things. But now they are serving together. Mark chapter 1, Then Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They're not on the Sea of Galilee. They're on the, the temple ground. They are fishing for men. 
And I don't know, I hope this is not lost on anybody, the value of these things for the church after the Gospels. I, I don't know how many Christians uh, it seem to avoid the book of Acts, but it, is, it should be the other way around. We should be eager to explore it. This is old school. This is old school Christianity. And it is as relevant today as it was in the day that it was taking place. And so they went together to the temple. Now, Acts chapter 1 through 10 describes this gradual transition from uh, the Israel, Israelites or the Jews under the influence of rabbinical Judaism uh, to the Gentile uh, influence in the church. Paul will have his hands filled dealing with the Gentiles and their idols. At one point he says, you, you left dumb idols from whatever. <laughs> it doesn't matter. They're false and they are dumb. They don't speak and they don't help. They hurt. So... This uh, we'll be watching because I fear a lot of Christians don't, they, their identity is confused. They don't know if they're supposed to be Old Testament Jewish type Gentile believers and, and, and they get trapped and mixed up in the law. Or do they understand that we as uh, servants of Christ are servants under the new covenant and uh, how important that is. Romans 12, verse 5. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Judaism would not allow that blessing upon the Gentiles, but the church does bring it forward. We'll come back to some of this. At the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, According to the rabbis, the lamb was slain for this evening sacrifice at about 2.30. And here, uh, Peter and John are a half hour later, after that sacrifice was slain, here they are coming for prayer. At 3, at about 3.30, the pieces of that animal will be offered on the altar. And so we see Peter and John going to the temple at the hour of prayer and still not yet developed in their Christianity and the identity of the church. They're still, you know, working through it. And God is working with them and he's very patient with them. He was ready for this. He's, again, he has to raise up a man like the Apostle Paul to really open it up. The Jews had three daily uh, uh, times of prayer. We already looked at one in chapter 2 where uh, we see uh, Peter uh, going to the temple to pray. In fact, Peter is found going to the temple to pray at each interval, at the morning prayer, the noon prayer, and at the evening prayer. We'll get uh, the noon prayer when we get to chapter 10. My point is he is a man of prayer as well as a man of the word. As stated when we get to chapter 6, when he says we will not give ourselves to serving in this capacity, but we will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, which we're going to see him open up. And Daniel chapter 6. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with the windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. And there's that three-interval 
Uh, We find Daniel practicing it in the face of persecution. They had outlawed his religion, but they couldn't stop him from practicing what he believed, his faith. Psalm 55, verse 17, Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. And so there again, this uh, uh, implication of the intervals of prayer in the Jewish believer, continued by the apostles in the early days, of course expanded to the point where if you're born again walking in the Spirit, you find yourself praying often, just often praying to God. Uh, I, I look forward to praying to God many times, but prayer is hard work. Anyway, Christianity is still centered at the Jewish temple at this time. And now they're not, we, we have no indication that they're going for the sacrifice. This is important because we get Christians that don't get, on, get that transition, that understanding. Paul, <clears throat> he had to deal with it in the Roman letter, in the Galatian letter, and as I mentioned, I believe, in his letter to the Hebrews. He had to try to get the Jewish Christians to understand you are now servants of a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is greater. And he goes on to say, we have a better covenant, better than Aaron, better than Moses. And he just hits that point uh, time and time again to the Hebrews. Once we're clear about this, we, we get strength in our witnessing. We understand our identity and who we are and where we belong. And when you're confused about that, then your strength is diminished because that's what confusion does. It diminishes strength. So at this point, they are at still the Jewish temple around the time of the evening sacrifice, the hour of prayer. They're returning to the place where the multitudes were. They had this, again, this three, almost 3,000 people come to the Lord. So they're, I'm sure, hoping to have another astounding victory. However, this time when Peter preaches, persecution is going to follow. And it's not going to stop. I mean, there'll be some periods of rest, but they will be a persecuted people. And uh, that persecution will be used by God to send the Christians out of Jerusalem. But that's not going to be enough. This is a gradual transition. The Jewish Christians will go out of Jerusalem, but they'll go to Galilee and some area, but they really won't go much further than that. Not until Paul comes along. In fact, Paul will find believers in Ephesus who did not even hear of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. This man had never walked in his life, and he's over 40 years old. We know he's over 40 years old, because in chapter 4 and verse 22, we're told he's over 40 years old. Never walked in his life. This description emphasizes that his condition was irreversible for men. Lame humanity, wrote one Bible pastor, is the church's opportunity, the Christian's opportunity. There are a lot of people who are lame, not physically, spiritually. There are many people who claim Christ as Lord, and spiritually, they are lame. They're they're not able to stand for whatever reason. 
somehow this man missed the touch of Christ. Uh, clearly, Christ did not heal everyone in Jerusalem. And here he is following his routine, having no idea what's coming. When he, when he woke up that morning, he had no knowledge of these things, that God had singled him out. Nor did the apostles. Peter and John, as close as they walked to Christ, they had no idea this was going to take place. This was not planned. This is evangelism. This is being ready to be used and then being used. And they did not do it in their own strength, which Peter will be very careful to point out in the next uh, session. It says here in verse 2, he was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. There was nothing more they could do for him but to put him where he could gain some sort of income. I believe he was loved. I believe that they cared for him, which is called beautiful, the gate. Likely that passageway that enters the temple ground and separates the court of uh, the, the Gentiles from the court of the women. Uh, still, once you get through the court of the women, you would then reach the, the court of Israel, uh, which was closer to the altar. Uh, this man could not go that far, but he will before this is done. Uh, to ask alms from those who entered the temple here in verse 2. Well, giving to those in need like this was considered an act of righteousness, even to this day in uh, uh, the, the Jewish world. And it, it, it should be a part of our righteousness, too. Paul says, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Why would he say that? Well, because we do grow weary. Because this life throws at us some pretty nasty things. And they can wear us down. And we're encouraged by the, in the scriptures not to, in, to endure. Well, what should the Bible say? Give up. Quit. Don't endure. Uh, find another God. Of course, that would be Satan, not, not the Lord. So, in, for us, uh, we would tend to see people like this. Certainly unfortunate. But sometimes maybe we even consider them a nuisance. Uh, these are a little bit different times. We have so many social programs in this country nowadays, but it's a big world. Uh, in the ancient world, they were everywhere. Uh, beggars, that is. And today we have uh, got to watch scammers who try to pretend to be in great need, but really uh, they just want to take uh, steal. But lame humanity is everywhere. And I want to emphasize this point. It's not always visible. And they're not always asking for help. What do we do about that as believers? We stay ready at the beck and the call of our master. That's what Christ wants from us, to be ready in season and out, which is, leaves no room for any other season. Verse 3 who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. This is a very difficult session, section to preach from because it's so good. What can you add to this? Uh, but uh, I don't really get much of a say-so in that. And to go preach the word, as you said, in season and out of season. But this was a legitimate uh, need. He needed money to survive. And the men are coming in and randomly, I'm sure there were many coming in and out, but he makes contact with these two. This is a divine setup. God is in this. Salvation in Christ. 
did not cross this man's mind this morning or any other likely. And we should be well aware that no one drifts into salvation. God is the one, is the author and finisher of our faith. And he uses us as part of the finishing and the authoring part. Uh, faith has to come in contact with, with unbelievers. True believers are supposed to be in touch with them. And we're supposed to order our lives in such a way that we don't uh, make it impossible by blowing our witness. I mean, there are a lot of Christians that are very well behaved in church. But then they go to the workplace and they're some of the most moody and nasty people you want to come across. And their witnesses compromise. And they want to hear the pastor tell how they can be used to save people. Or they want to bring somebody to the church and let the pastor save them because they've already ruined everything. Uh, these things we should be aware of. But, w- but here's a question, and maybe this will be the question that sits with all of us today. Why should God do anything for you? Or anybody else for that matter? None of us are entitled. In fact, we're lined up for judgment for breaking his law and his universe. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why should God do anything for you? I mean, we know the answer to this, but it is still a searching question, especially when you have needs, especially when you're crying out in physical pain or some other type of pain, because there are many, many brands of pain. God, however, is God of love and responds to those who respond to him. And that involves faith, not miracles. Faith, well, I mean, of course, faith is a miracle. It is a spiritual event. It alerts the individuals, the witnesses to to this event that there are great spiritual forces at work. And hopefully we recognize they come from heaven. Verse 4, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. This is one of those rare details that says so much. Fixing his eyes. And fixing his eyes on him, with John, Peter said, look at us, look at us. He is engaging this individual. This is, this is deliberate, it is intelligent, and it has got to be piercing. It's cutting through, it's doing something. This is a, the Holy Spirit, I don't know, when Luke recorded this, I don't know if he's just telling the facts as he knew them, or if he's really understanding that the Holy Spirit is saying, this is critical. Peter is making sure that there's eye-to-eye contact. He doesn't want to be vague about what's going to happen to this man. How does Peter know God has imparted this faith to him on this occasion? I find this, engaging unbelievers eye-to-eye as a priority in our prayer, yes, hope in our life. I find it better than leaving tracks or or some desperate internet post. I don't know, when, when a Christian goes on a website about, you know, how to repair a, 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 you know, a faucet, and they leave, you know, Jesus loves you, I think it does more damage than anything else. It just numbs down. I mean, we're going to come to this when we find the, the, the young girl going ahead of Paul and uh, Silas, if I recall. Yes, Silas, at Philippi, said, these are the ones that show us the way of salvation. That message was true. But coming from her, it was no good. 
And I don't think Paul picked it up right away. That's why it took him a few days to finally say, you know what, I had about enough of that. I know what this is going on here. She's cheapening the gospel. She's dumbing it down. She has no authority to preach the gospel. She doesn't know Christ. And the sons of Sceva, they said, we cast you out, we exhort you to come out in the name of Jesus, who Paul spoke about. They did not have a relationship with Christ. And the spirit in that man beat them up, stripped them of their garments. God's saying this serious stuff here. You need to make contact with people if you're going to be used by Christ. And not just throwing it up in the air and hope that it lands on the target. If you did that with mortars, you might have them come down on your head. Eye to eye contact. Close enough. I know it's difficult in the workplace because people get a chance to see you uh, at your worst as far as your witness. And you've got to be strong. It's doable. And you can wear out that field. You've preached to everybody in the office. Well, Christ can bring other people your way outside the office. Oh, here's Peter. He's going to take charge of this. Uh, He's going to change this man inside and out. Of course, God doing it all, verse 5. So he gave them his attention. I bet he did. I don't know if anybody's ever done this to him before. Look at me. Most people just want to give him something and get out of my way. But uh, here Peter is stopped and he's engaging him. He gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Zero faith and operation on that man's part. When Peter later on in verse 16 says, this is faith that has done this. He's not talking about this man's faith. He's talking about his faith in Jesus Christ. Peter's faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's available to you too. Well, in this condition, he expected a handout, not a hand up. I don't like those phrases. I know a lot of people do, but they're just kind of cliche-like. But it's, it's a fact. He is going to literally get a hand up. The right hand, the Bible will specify. And may we not look down on this man since in his condition begging for money. It's so easy to look down on people. Um, verse 6, Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It didn't take guts to do that on Peter's part. It took faith. It took a man that was just in tune with Christ and knew this is what had to happen. If you, if, 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 if later on John says, how did you know to do this? Uh, you know, Peter was, I don't know. I just knew it. I just knew it. It was imparted. I don't think, I think John was right there with him. So let's pick somebody else. Andrew. Uh, and how did that happen? Anyway, Peter's not apologizing for being broke. I'm, when someone asks me for something that I don't agree with or don't like, I don't want to say to them, sorry. Because I'm not sorry. <laughs> I don't have any money for you. And um, if I'm not sorry, I don't want to say I am. Uh, that kind of drifts a little bit. But <laughs> here's Peter broke. No money on him. So much for that greedy goblin prosperity teaching. that God wants you rich with cash. Just put more money in the offering box. Man, I don't want to be like that on Judgment Day. The prosperity movement cannot say silver and gold I do not have. They're loaded with cash that they've stolen from people by dangling a carrot in front of them. And the people are greedy enough to follow that. You'd say, well, they get what they deserve. There's a saying, you know, you get the church you deserve. 
Nor can the prosperity movement say, rise up and walk. Trade-off. Remember in verse 1 when I made a big deal about Peter being a man of prayer, and we see him at every interval. The book of Acts says, here's Peter at morning prayer. Here he is again at, at noon prayer. And then here he is again at evening prayer. Well, here he is involved in answering perhaps an unspoken prayer, certainly up to this time an ungranted prayer, and this man of prayer is being used by God. On their way to prayer, they're being used because people of prayer are effective people. But you have to learn how to pray, I think. I, I, don't, I mean, the apostles came to Christ and said, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. Jesus never really answered the question. He just directed them to faith, which is, I guess, the answer. It's this relation. Faith is not just trusting God. It's a relationship with God. Why do I trust God? Well, because he's God. No, because I know him. And if I didn't know him, I couldn't trust him. There has to be this uh, exposure to his character. What's, what is God like? Is he looking to clobber me over my head? Does he enjoy judging people? Has he removed himself from humanity's suffering? How could God do this? And how, Well, if you know the character of God, you're going to give God what we would call the benefit of the doubt every time. You're going to say God is good. And you can't take that from him. And just because things aren't working out the way they should doesn't mean you are entitled to forget that this world is cursed because of sin. Sin is such a big deal that God gave his only begotten son. That is a big deal. And to put it on a WrestleMania t-shirt is blasphemy. I mean, you know, remember that wrestler that was using 316? I hope he repents before he breathes his last because that was a smack in the faith face to the faith. The church, I know some of you WrestleMania fans, you've got the demon of WrestleMania and you need to be exercised. So, and you know it. Don't worry. Wasn't there a Super Bowl recently? Because there's another group that... Anyway, I know years ago someone said, we, this Super Bowl Sunday, are we, we canceling service? Be gone, you demon! It's like, no! A stupid question is that to ask a pastor! God, should we close the service? Anyway, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I, I read, had it in my notes, and I figured I'd share it. The church used to be known for its good deeds, and now it's known for its bad mortgages. There are a lot of churches that they, don't, they can't keep their mortgage, and it's a fear. I mean, uh, what's that about when Peter says, silver and gold have I none? Such as I have, I give you. His priorities are right. I mean, well, you need money. It's just the way the world is set up. You have to have something to exchange with. And money is the principal way. Uh, Bitcoin. Uh, that would be a... <laughs> All right. <laughs> he says, what I do have, I give you. Their priorities count. That, I, I get that from this. That this counts, this man Peter counts, because he's a man of prayer, he's a man of the word, he's got faults like everybody else, he's still impetuous, but he's used by God. 
in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That would have been Yeshua. Yeshua, Messiah of Nazareth. He is the priority. Think of, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ. Think of all the things you cannot do in the name of Jesus Christ. You cannot hate in his name. Well, you can hate evil, of course, but you better watch that because the flesh will latch on to it. And the next thing you know, you're hating people who do the evil. And then you're hating people who aren't so evil. And then you're just going to hate whoever you don't like. Uh, Roadmates. We don't, do we have a name for other drivers that we face? Roadmates. What else are they? They were shipmates if we were on the same ship. Well, we're sharing the same interstate. Aren't they roadmates? Well, I mean, cow orcas. You might pronounce it co-workers, but it's really cow orcas. Look at the word next time. Okay. Again. Think of what you can't do for Christ. <laughs> you cannot revile someone, abuse them, create, just be mean. mean. Meanness is creating pain for your satisfaction on another person, making yourself feel good. We cannot do a lot of things in Jesus' name, and yet there are many things we can do in his name. Verse 7 He took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. This is what we can do in the name of Christ. We can touch others. We can lift them up with our right hand. That's where our strength is in the scripture. And here we see Peter doing just that. Sometimes, though, you can't. The pastor's rod is for protection and correction. And as Christians, you better get that in your head. It's a good thing to have. Again, the letter to Hebrews, three times in one chapter, Paul says they rule over you. Not they don't take control of your life. But they are the, custo- the stewards. You know what a steward is? Is someone who manages someone else's property. That's what a steward is in the scripture and in life. It's not the same as being a businessman. They, they share certain principles, but they're not identical. One of the advantages a businessman has over uh, his employees is that he pays them. Uh, the church is an army of volunteers, essentially. It's only by consent and the, the following the leading of the Holy Spirit, ideally speaking. But this rod and that I'm talking about, where you cannot always just lift someone else up because their behavior prohibits this. Paul, dealing with the church in Corinth, they were so abusing the communion table, they were getting drunk at the communion table in church. They were gorging themselves in church. They were gobbling up all the good things and leaving, uh, rushing to the head of the line to get them so others couldn't get them in church. Paul says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. Later on, he says, what, you don't have houses to go eat in? You got to come to the church and behave this way? What is your problem? In verse 11, uh, verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, or do you despise the church of God? That's a heavy hit to say to a Christian, do you despise the church? 
and shame those who have nothing? Because that's what they were doing. James has to deal with the same thing. You know, a rich guy comes in, you know, oh, you fawn all over him. Let's just make you a board member. You must know everything. You're rich. Paul says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. He comes out. I'm sure that was his tone, too. I do not praise you. And that Corinthian letter, he's constantly saying, you know, I don't have to be there to judge this guy. I do judge him. What he is doing demands judgment. It's not like, well, don't judge him, brother. How about this? <laughs> was that a little bit too much in the flesh? It looked like I was really, I'll go back and play the, later on and see how stupid I look. Anyway, I know, that's ridiculous. I never look stupid. So, <laughs> You know, before I became a pastor, I just wanted to mind my business. Now I got to make sure, just, you know, hair is in place and keep it out of my eyes. Well, anyway, my point, verse 7, is Peter took him by the hand. But sometimes even beloved brothers and sisters who we don't really like too much, uh, we have to, you know, just can't always bless. Uh, There are requirements of us. Immediately, his feet and ankle bones receive strength. Now we're back to the narrative. This is the age of apostolic wonders, as Jesus promised. You will do signs and wonders, and they are doing them. Peter is giving this man greater control of his destiny now. Verse 8, so he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. First stop for this man, the house of God. That's where he goes first. It's like the, the, you know, the ten lepers, but the one that came back and said to the Lord, thank you. And he wasn't even um, a child of the covenant. And Jesus noted that. I encourage you, God answers your prayers. Remember to thank him. It's a good practice. And it beneficial. It is beneficial. Well, now that this man can stand, there's no question where he stands. Now that he can stand up on his own two feet, there's no question where he stands. Now, is that the case with us? Or do we still have cow workers, uh, pardon me, co-workers that don't know we're believers because we're too timid? We don't want to let them know. We, you know, why? Why is that? Well, each person has to... Now, it doesn't mean you have to walk around a sandwich board on announcing your faith, but it does mean... That when the door opens and say, no, nah, I don't do that. And they say, why? Because I believe in Jesus Christ. That's why I don't do that. And now you're going to draw fire. Or uh, another question I have this morning, in addition to why should God do anything for us, is do we lose hope in Christ because we don't see the miraculous done? Is truth not enough for us who believe? Jesus taught on this. Then Jesus said to them, John chapter 4, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. That was not a statement. It was a rebuke. More than a statement. This man is walking and leaping and praising. Even though his legs were certainly atrophy, the atrophy was just there. What legs did he have? They were just limbs. Forty years like this. And yet, he's instantly restored. Verse 9. And all the people who saw him walking and praising God. Now, we stop there because this is an important, this is what leads to the sermon in the next paragraph, next session, uh, that there were witnesses to this. Um, It was not enough to see this man standing, that he had been the recipient of a miracle. 
There had to be some explanation to this. And it had to be sound explanation. And Peter's going to give that. He's not going to let this slide. He's going to say, you see him healed? Let me tell you what's taking place. He does not want anything to be vague about the work of Christ in this man's life. Verse 10. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now that's Luke explaining what was going on, but that's not Luke telling Peter what's going on. Peter knew what was happening. He did not need to know that they were filled. He knew he had an audience. And he was going, he learned his lesson the first time. He preached on Joel and they said, what do we do, Peter? Well, this time Peter is not going to wait for them to ask. He's going to go right to it. And when you, and you, when, when you, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> when you cough in front of a lot of people like that, <coughs> you just have to take it. Uh, they're my rewards. I'm going to get rewards for this looking silly in front of people. Anyway, back to this, this undeniable truth in verse 10. Unless you were blind, as the world is, you'd miss this. But they were not blind, and the world is blind. They're not blind to Satan. They may not want to admit it is him for much of what they do. We understand these things. It says here they were filled with wonder and amazement, just like in Acts chapter 2. Let's read it. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. That is the power of God in action. The wonder is the effect. And the amazement, that's value there. That gives you a chance to talk about it. Now, here's a paradox. Is it still a miracle when someone believes in Jesus Christ without a miracle? Absolutely it is. Salvation is a miraculous event. And if it were not so, who needs God? I could just write a book. I could be very clever. I can just offer up convincing arguments. And they still wouldn't believe. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that brings somebody to Christ. At at what happened to him, that's what was used. Because these were difficult times. How do you take such a religious people who are determined to adhere to at least the name of Moses, with all that they have in their religion, how do you let them know there's a new covenant now? It would, I would have rejected any new covenant were it not put into the Scripture first. That took away their excuse because the Old Testament illustrated it, announced it, demonstrated the new covenant. And the world wants to abolish the supernatural nature that belongs to faith, converting faith, as well as serving faith. You see, you can be converted and believe in Jesus Christ, but not be discipled and not grow and develop your faith. We need faith that continues. And that proves the power of Christ. And faith is not blind. Unbelief is not blind. Luke chapter 6, verse 3. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? May we not forget that, because Christ expects us to be able to see. Peter could see, John could see, and that's why they're being used. The spirit of Antichrist is quick to ridicule faith in Christ. The spirit of Antichrist is quick to mess up our priorities. 
to have us centered on other things, not the essentials, to have us major in the minors. But uh, how come the world is not quick to ridicule Satan? Because they're too much, too much buddied up next to him, and I'm, I'm almost done. As I mentioned, next Peter will preach, and then the persecution, persecution will follow. And the Christians in Jerusalem will be persecuted for telling the truth about Jesus Christ. They will also make converts. And every single one of those converts will be very grateful that there were those willing to suffer to be able to preach the gospel nonetheless. Uh, again, Stephen, if you were to get to heaven and say, Stephen, was it worth it? You seem to have been a young man, very smart and very strong. And one day you preached Christ and they killed you for it. Was it worth it? And of course, without hesitation, he would say, yes, it was worth it. Uh, the Apostle Paul is the fruit that, one of the fruits that came out of his death. Let's hope we remember some of this stuff as being real to us as we head out this week into a world that ridicules Christ. You don't have to put up with that. I mean, you can't take him to court and sue him, stop them. But you can say, as for me and my house, we believe the truth, and you don't. Nah, 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 nah. Let's pray. Our Father, the world thinks these are just little stories either made up by men or just accounts that really have no spiritual value, but we know better. We know better because we have been born all over again through your Holy Spirit, the power of the cross of Christ and the resurrection that belongs to it. And we who believe, Lord, may we always be eager to be used by you to share the gospel outside of the home, outside of the workplace, wherever you find us, wherever you put us. If you've been watching and or listening and you have not ever opened your heart to Christ, and by that I, I mean admit that he is right about you being a sinner and he being the only Savior, if you've not done that, then judgment is on you. Condemnation is on you. It is just a matter of time. And by then, if you do not repent and turn to Christ, it will be too late. There's no second chance after this life. This is the proving ground. If you want to have your sins, the penalty for your sin, removed you must come to Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin. If you say this as an example and mean it in earnest, God will receive you. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments. I do believe that you are God the Son. That you died for me. That you rose again. And I give my life to you. And I give it to you because you are not only the one that saves my soul from judgment, but the Lord over my life. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.